Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Neck brace is the nothing personal word of the day for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. Neck brace is what Lance McCullers is going to wake up and have to put on because he spent the entire game yesterday, game three of the World Series in Philadelphia, straining his neck after he delivered pitches, looking back into the outfield seats as ball after ball was being hit out of the ballpark. Those neck braces, you know what you wear when you're in a car accident and you want the other side's lawyers to think that you hurt your neck even though there's no way to prove it. And then you put it around and it sort of constricts your neck so you can't move it because it's so sore. Give me a settlement. The World Series game started yesterday and everyone's watching and everything seems fine. Not exactly sure I understood the top of the first approach with Jose Altuve swinging on the first pitch. Then you had Penny on the first pitch, two outs, two pitches. Suarez is looking good. Didn't make him work at all. That was the starting pitcher. Because of the rainout, they were able to go with Suarez last night. The Phillies were. So then the bottom of the first comes. Lance McCullers gets on the mound. Leading off for the Philadelphia Phillies, as he has been forever, is Kyle Schwarber. Kyle Schwarber has been on base many games in a row, acting like a leadoff hitter. He's hitting bombs. He's getting on base Maybe this is the new kind of leadoff hitter, but Juan Pierre, he's not. So Schwarber's up, finds his way on base because Lance McCullers is not throwing strikes. And when he does throw strikes, they're not being missed. So there were not swings and misses that were taking place, which is what Lance McCullers is known for. He's not your typical number three starter, and that's where he is in the rotation of the Astros. He is better than that. He doesn't give up home runs. He has a wicked slider, wicked breaking ball, and his fastball plays at the major league level. He locates it well. Everything about him, he's good. Now, don't get me wrong. The Phillies' offense is above average. They're playing well. They're at home. The crowd's going crazy. Everything's coming up roses for the Phillies, but it doesn't explain Schwarber gets on base because Lance McCullers opening up his body. He's not do tipping pitches. He's not doing anything. His mechanics are terrible. Cannot locate the ball. Schwarber walks. Bryce Harper comes up eventually in that inning. And Bryce Harper gets to the plate. And what happened next 
is when the alarm bells should start going off if you're the Houston Astros. The story of game three is that Bryce Harper hit a two-run home run in the first inning off the worst breaking ball Lance McCullers has ever thrown. Was it, though? It was right over the dish. It broke right into his barrel. Is it the result of the fact that he had had no command the first three hitters and he was just trying to get me over breaking ball? In the regular season, we'll tell a pitcher to do it. If you are losing your command and you're walking people, we'll say just get a pitch over. That's what we'll talk about with strategy. If they hit it, they hit it. But just get the confidence because the batter may miss it. It may not go for a home run. Just throw a get-me-over fastball, which means you tick down your velocity by a couple miles per hour. Throw a get-me-over breaking ball, which just means you know that you're going to control the spin just a little bit more so it has less bite, less spin, and it's going to be a strike. That is totally standard operating procedure, but not in a World Series. Lance McCullers was not throwing a, hey, please get me over breaking ball to the best hitter on the Phillies. Two-time MVP, maybe the best hitter in the entire series, the MVP of the ALCS? Absolutely not. But that's exactly what it was. Bryce Harper was waiting for it. So here's what we do up in the box. When we see a swing like that, our spidey senses go up immediately. We don't wait for a second swing like that, or a third, or a fourth, or a fifth after one swing like Bryce Harper did in the first inning, and we don't have the video because I'm in a hotel. But it's easy with your second screen to go search the pitch that Bryce Harper hit in the bottom of the first inning. So Bryce Harper hits the home run. We're up in the box if this were our team, my team. And I'm making a call immediately to the president of baseball operations. Come, let's talk. Did you see that? We're going to go down to the clubhouse. We're going to the replay visitors because we're visiting team, right? We're in Philadelphia. We're going to the clubhouse where the video guy is set up because each clubhouse has the home clubhouse has a permanent video room. The visiting clubhouse has an area where the visiting video guy with all this equipment sets up. And we're going down and we're going to look at that pitch. And then we're starting to look at our pitcher because it means one of two things, period. The pitcher's either tipping his pitches or our signs are being stolen. So the Houston Astros and Martin Maldonado use something called PitchCom. You may have noticed that during this postseason. PitchCom is a device where there's no more fingers. Fingers are used much less often now because there's a electronic device where you can press a button and then the pitcher has an earpiece or a thing in his helmet that's a speaker that says breaking ball. Slider, four-seamer, two-seamer, knuckle curve. And then the pitcher nods and the pitcher throws. When this was being developed, and it was being developed when I was still in the game, one of the questions was, how do we control or stop other teams from stealing our signal or from somehow listening in or splicing it or like shortwave radio type of stuff where you can eavesdrop? like with two cans of peas that you've emptied, put a hole in and put a string in between and said, Dad, can you hear me? Is it possible that that's what the Phillies were doing? They had hacked Pitchcom? No. So now we're looking at the next thing. 
we're watching Lance McCullers. And we're noticing the following. When you're looking for tipping pitches, you are looking at three parts of the pitcher's body. Face, hand in glove position, glove position on the release, leg kick. That sounded like four, didn't it? I have four fingers up, Coco. Was that four? Those are the areas that we're looking at. And then we are looking at each pitch. We have the video guy who's supposed to be doing replay. But in this case, we've got him going back. We want to see every pitch. And we know what's being thrown. We know the order in which it's being thrown. We know the pitches that are being called. So we are looking. And we're not the only ones. There was a situation in our World Series in 03 where we had a bench player named Mike Mordecai, and we brought him into the clubhouse to see if he could steal signs or see if the other pitcher of the Yankees was tipping his pitches. We also have our guys looking at our own pitchers to try to pick up any tipping. So Bryce Harper hits a home run, 2 nothing Phillies, crowd's going crazy. Bryce Harper goes back to the dugout, and the cameras catch him whispering something to Alex Bohm, who then hits a home run. When you talk to your players, there's two types of players talking to players when they're on offense. The first type is when a new pitcher comes in, you'll make sure that whoever's at bat is speaking to a player who has seen that pitcher before, if it's a new pitcher to the team, to the other team. You've got the hitting coach and the assisting coach going to the players and saying, don't forget, this guy's got a two-seamer. He's throwing his sinker 40% of the time and watch for inside two lefties. He's going to try to go back foot slider. Whatever, whatever you're being told, it's the scouting report for that particular pitcher who's coming in the game to face that particular hitter. Very normal. When a hitter is done with an at-bat, they will go back to the dugout and they will say, wow, his backdoor slider is biting or his fastball is rising. Be aware. It looks as though the fastball is in the zone, but it's going to tail. Look for that. It is the communication that happens between players that is normal, that has nothing to do with tipping pitches. If, however, you see that the pitcher is tipping, you immediately go back to the dugout and you tell your teammates in a very quiet way what the pitcher is doing to tip and what to look out for. You don't call a team meeting. You don't tell 10 players at once. You tell one player who tells another player who tells another player because you don't want the other team to know that you know that their pitcher is tipping. Got it? So Harper goes and tells Bohm. He's not telling him, hey, sit on the fastball. No, he's telling him exactly what McCullers is doing so Bohm knows what to look for. When you give up five home runs in five innings, which sets a record in the World Series, there is no other explanation given that you're a pitcher who does not give up home runs. No matter what Lance McCullers said last night publicly, which was, hey, they beat me. I didn't have great location. I must not have had my best stuff. You're never going to acknowledge to your opponent, yeah, I was tipping pitches and they caught it, ever. You are just going to say, 
tip your cap, they got me, and move on. So what Lance McCullers did, good. After the game, Bohm, Harper, nobody's going to say, yeah, we had that. We knew exactly when he was spinning the ball, exactly when he was throwing the fastball. You're not going to do that because you don't want to give the Astros confirmation. There is no other explanation other than the fact he was both tipping and the Phillies had figured it out. So what do you do when you're the Astros? So as a road team, we told you that we're down in the video room. We're looking. We know how to look the same way Philly knows how to look. We're speaking to our players, meaning the Astros' own players, but in this case it would have been Marlins, but we're speaking to our players saying, are you seeing anything with our pitcher? These guys are experienced. If he's tipping McCullers and Maldonado, will know. Altuve will know. Bregman will know. Guriel will know. That's the first baseman, third baseman, second baseman. We're speaking to the infielders and the catcher. They're going to know. When we find out that our pitcher is tipping, we go to the pitcher and explain what he's doing and what adjustments he has to make. And if he can't make them, we're pulling him out of the game. Dusty Baker has gone the other way this postseason. He has left starters in longer than I would have expected, not shorter. Uh, Strike that. He has taken pitchers out shorter He's had a shorter leash this year, this postseason, than he did when he was managing the Cubs and the Giants into the World Series when he had his starters out way too long. What would explain him leaving McCullers in as long as he did? Especially the way they were teeing off. These were not just your run-of-the-mill home runs. These were five different players crushing the ball. That doesn't happen. And yet, he keeps him in to give up seven runs in four-plus innings. Game three is an important series. When you have a series tied at 1-1 in a seven-game series, the winner of game three wins 69% of the series. Nice, right? That means you're going for a game three win. Well, it's also the equivalent of game one of a, of a five-game series, right? Because that's what the World Series has become, a five-game series where the Phillies have home field, first three in Philly, and they won game one. You've got to manage with a little more urgency there, Dusty. It can't be that we were the only ones who knew something was up with Lance McCullers. You've got to have your pitching coach in your ear. You've got to have James Click, the GM, running down to the dugout, ripping his hair out lighting something on fire in order to get someone's attention, putting up a flare to make sure that everyone's aware what's happening, and then you stop it. You can come back from 4 nothing. They didn't score last night, but you can come back from 4 nothing, 7 nothing. it's pretty much game over in the fifth inning. The silver lining for the Astros is they had their long guy, or Keedy, who had not pitched all postseason, who gave him three innings, the silver lining for the Phillies is that not only did they get the win, they didn't have to use any of their high-leverage bullpen arms. So we go into a game four tonight, and it's fascinating. There are no must-wins until elimination. We've told you that on the show. But let's talk about the mentality of a game four. That's a 2-1 get series. Phillies win tonight, and they decided to, because of the postponement the other day, they're going back to their game one starter in Aaron Nola. 
the Astros have a deep rotation. They're not going back to Verlander, the worst World Series pitcher in history, who was the game one starter. They're starting Christian Javier, who is a phenomenal number four starter. Phenomenal. Going against Nola, the game one starter, the number one starter, more like pitching this postseason like a number three since he was pitching like an ace the first few postseason games. Now he's pitching more like a three. He's given up runs the last two times. The Astros feel confident about scoring runs off him for sure. They've seen him before. But in a 2-1 series lead, if the Phillies win tonight, that's a commanding 3-1 lead. And with their offense, you would think they can win one out of the next three and they're going to be World Series champions. The Astros tie the series up. All of a sudden, they've got Verlander, Valdez, and McCullers again in Game 7. That's their 5-6-7. And they have an advantage over the Phillies because not only do they have home field advantage for the final three games, because if the Astros win tonight, it's a three-game series. It's not a best of five anymore. Now it's a best of three with Houston having two of the three games at home. Game four always has the most at stake. We were down 2-1 in our series against the Yankees to a home game four. Roger Clemens on the mound, his final start, standing ovations galore, congratulating him, 65 or 70,000 people in the stands. Carl Pavano, you may not remember, for those of you who don't know who that is, he started that game and matched Roger Clemens' phenomenal game. We blow the save. It goes into extra innings. And Alex Gonzalez, the shortstop for the Marlins, hits a walk-off home run, and we win. So instead of being down three games to one, we tied it at two and went on to win the World Series, winning the next two, by the way. I've always thought game four is the most critical game of the series up to that point. (laughs) I tried to get through a Coca. I wanted to deliver that with a straight face. You're going to hear all the pregame shows and you're going to hear all of the talking heads. Game four is the most important game of the series until it's tied at two. And then game five in a 2-2 series, the winner of game five wins 89% of the time. Game five becomes unbelievably important. And in a 3-2 series, man, game six pretty much matters because if you lose game six, the series is over. If you win game six, you get to go to a deciding game seventh. And don't get me wrong, game sevens are the most important game in the series. But you really want to start out well, so game one matters the most. I could give you a cogent argument that every game other than game two is the most important game of the series. It's going to be interesting, Coca. I'll tell you one thing that's not going to happen, I promise you. I promise you. Christian Javier will not be tipping his pitches. I'm going to make you another promise. I'm going to do a bonus wait to see because it's so easy and I'm looking for a victory. Wait to see is when I tell you something's going to happen. When it does, I'll revisit it. When it doesn't, I'll revisit it. Ready? The Philadelphia Phillies, wait to see, will not hit five home runs tonight. (laughs) Can I even do that, Coca? It's not even fair, is it? So that's it. Game four is tonight. It's a very, very important game. I'm not even sure that that's the biggest story of the day yesterday. Go ahead, Coca. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson. Just get in my Twitter, David P. Samson, and talk to me. Talk to me, goose. Talk to me. I'm here for you. 
Someone said, I can't wait for David P. Sampson to imagine how absolutely joyous it made the Celtics that another team was volunteering to usher away Boston's biggest current problem as an organization. Giddy up. What a day in Brooklyn. Baked in Brooklyn is the name of this segment. Also the name of a great movie, which I watched and haven't reviewed yet on Nothing Personal. It's not my movie of the day. The Nets are baked. We did a special show yesterday, an additional nothing personal. I gave you 10 minutes on the firing of Steve Nash. What an absolute joke it was that Nash got fired. It was not a mutual parting of the ways. Biggest horse hockey I've ever heard. Statements from Joe Sy, statements from Sean Marks, statements from Steve Nash. Everything's fine. Jacques Vaughn is the interim coach, former coach of the Magic. And then word gets out immediately, not like days later or weeks later. This is minutes later that Ime Udoka, Ime Udoka, the erstwhile coach of the Boston Celtics, the very man who has been suspended for this year, the very man who used to be an assistant coach for the Nets, went to the Celtics, took the Celtics when Brad Stevens stepped upstairs, who was their coach, took them to the Eastern Conference Finals and then got fired. Coca, I'm totally blanking right now. Were the Celtics in the finals? Did they win the Eastern Conference last year, six months ago, four months ago, or were they just in the finals? I'm trying to remember. They lost, oh, they lost to the Warriors in the actual finals. Of course, it was Tatum and Brown. So Udoka, the coach, brings them to the finals. They lose to the Warriors. Tatum, their player, Jalen Brown. There was some rumor of Jalen Brown. Would he be available in a Durant trade, et cetera, et cetera. They're still one of the top two tandems in basketball. Way better than LeBron and Anthony, by the way, currently. So the Celtics are in great position. And all of a sudden... Udoka is suspended. And the reason he's suspended, word leaks out, is that he had an inappropriate relationship with a, an inferior employee. He was the superior to this employee. There's rumors, was it the wife of an employee? Was it the actual employee? We don't know. Did he make unwanted advances? We're not positive. Did, was he harassing? We just don't know. But something happened because he was suspended for an entire year. And then rumor out of Boston was, hey, we don't really want him back but we don't have enough. We're not going to fire him now. He was just sort of in purgatory away from the team. Moments after Steve Nash gets fired, the Nets do what only the greatest shit show of an organization could do, and they pivot right toward Udoka. Explain to me why that makes sense to you. So what happens is when you're looking for a coach, and you want someone who is an employee of another team, you actually have to pick up the phone and call the other team and say, excuse me, I'd like permission to interview Mr. X. And the team says, oh, I really don't want you to interview Mr. X. However, if you do want to interview Mr. X and you end up signing Mr. X, we're going to want some C-O-M-P. And we'd like maybe one of your draft picks, or we'd like a player, or we'd like a bag of basketballs, or we'd like the opportunity to use your frequent flyer miles to give to our employees. We're just going to want some form of compensation. The Nets call up the Celtics and say, hey, we're interested in 
talking to Ime, and they say, Uma? No, no, Ime. Uma? You're not calling about Udoka, are you? Oh, no, yes, we, we want to. <gasps> hold on one second. Let me get back to you. You put the call on hold. You pretend you're speaking to your owner if you're Sean Marks because Sean Marks gets the call. You don't actually call Joe Sai. You then wait less than fewer than six seconds because you don't want somehow there to be a dropped call. You don't want any issues with the cellular network. And you say, yes, you have permission. Will there be comp required? No. The fact that the Nets are willing to take Udoka off the Celtics' hands and make it their problem is like mana from heaven for the Boston Celtics. It's too good to be true. 20 minutes later, the rumor comes out. Deal with Udoka looks to be done, could be announced as early as Wednesday. That's today, folks. The Nets then have to cover themselves by saying, leaking. Hey, we're doing a lot of research. We're doing our diligence. We're vetting all candidates. How long do you think it takes to vet someone just in the ordinary course? So let me give you the analogy here. When we make a trade for a player in baseball, before a trade can be completed, there's something called the exchange of physicals, the exchange of medical. What an exchange of medical is, is the trainers from each team get on the phone. They say, hey, we're about to trade for Joe Cocktoston. Oh, hey, let me look at the chart. Yeah, he came in, he had a little toenail thing, no problem, he was available. And then he had a little soreness in his right groin area, but that was just a long night out, he was available. Oh, and that one time, we had to hold him back one game. Anything else? No, that's about it. All right, what about Dr. Rosenrosen? Oh, he was on the injured list for 15 days. That was something, that was just a strained neck. Uh, he gave up a lot of home runs. We didn't have a neck brace, but now he's fine. He's pitching. Anything else? No, he's good. All right, thank you. Now we'll have the doctors talk. The team doctor for Team X talks to the team doctor from Team Y. Hey, anything? Nope. You? Anything? Nope. All good. Done. You then call up the GMs and say, the player's medical has been exchanged. Each player has been passed. Great. Call the commissioner. We've got a trade. Done. There's another way it happens. Hey, uh, we're looking to uh, trade for uh, Ralph Emerson. And uh, what do you got on him? Well, he's actually on rehab right now, as you know. He's coming off Tommy John. And uh, here's where he is in his progression. He's throwing from 90 feet right now. And here's the program we have him on. And we expect him to be ready in two to four weeks, let's say. What about your guy? Well, my guy was on the uh, IL. He had a hamstring issue. Ooh, did you do an MRI? Yeah. All right, could you send that, please? All right, hold on. I can email it to you. Back in the day, we when before email, right, you actually had to send it. There were delays in trades because we would, like, be sending by FedEx pictures, images, so teams could look at it before passing a player, before stuff could be shared as easily as now. Hey, just email me the MRI. All right, I got the MRI. All right, I'm showing it to the doctor. The doctor looks at the MRI of the player of the other team. The doctor calls the team president and the GM and says, hey, um, this doesn't look good. Well, how bad? When's he going to be back? Oh, it could be another month or so. Like when Harrison Bader was traded to the Yankees for Jordan Montgomery, the team doctors for the Yankees knew exactly what was going on with his plantar fasciitis. They knew exactly how long he was going to be out. They told Brian Cashman. Brian Cashman and Hal Steinbrenner agreed that they were willing to swallow that amount of injured list time, and they agreed to pass Harrison Bader and make the trade. That is normally what happens. When you've got 
a situation like the Celtics had where you're getting called on someone who you are trying to jettison immediately, you don't waste much time and you do an immediate yes. You don't try to screw around with compensation. You don't try to do anything. When it's a player you're trying to move, you try to get that player's information to the other team and get that other team to agree ASAP. You don't celebrate. You don't call your owner and say, oh my God, someone wants to trade for this guy or oh my God, someone's going to pick up this guy's contract. You don't do any of that until the documents are signed and the player or coach is removed from your roster, from your system, from your organization. The fact that the Nets believe the smartest way for their organization to move forward and they are in the middle of a hailstorm of locusts and they believe the best way is with Udoka? What happens when you're doing due diligence on medical? It can happen in a snap of a finger. But doing due diligence on a situation where a player's been suspended or a player has a pending DUI or a player has a pending domestic violence issue or a player has a workplace harassment issue, that doesn't take a minute. And guess what? Most teams don't care. But if you're hiring a coach and you're the Nets, are you really not caring? Because you can't vet Ime Udoka in a matter of an hour. Does that mean that they've been vetting him for a week because they wanted to fire Steve Nash before the season even started? The season's only two weeks old. The Nets had played seven games. Did they decide to fire Steve Nash a week ago, so started the investigation into Udoka then? Because you could get it done in a week, maybe. Are you getting access to witnesses? Are you getting access to confidential HR files? Did you hire someone to do some research, to have some conversations, interview some people? You can vet a player's injury very quickly. How do you vet a player or a coach who has had a situation that Udoka has? You can do it, but it takes time. Two things cannot be true that were said by the Nets yesterday. Sean Marks, the GM, said, Steve Nash walked into my office and said, I've lost the locker room. I think we should part ways. Oh, interesting. Give me a break. So you had no thought you were going to get rid of him. He comes in, and then you both mutually agree that it's time to go, and then Udoka's ready to go in a day? Hmm, that's not a lot of vetting. Or Steve Nash did not come in yesterday because a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago, or maybe when KD wanted you to, you agreed you were going to get rid of Steve Nash, and you waited until he had a bad enough start, and I guess you thought two and five was a bad enough start, and you had done your vetting the minute Udoka got suspended. You said, hey, we want him, and you did your process then. That could be true. But them finding out that they're getting rid of Nash on a Tuesday and them hiring Udoka on a Wednesday, if that happened, no vetting. So which is it, Joseph Sai? You of all spending your money for all the greatness in the world, covering up and fixing all of the things that ell us, trying to fix everyone, not just stopping Asian hate, but all hate, all misogyny, doing great things, eliminating workplace harassment, throwing money at the problem. Explain to me your plan. 
don't release a statement about how close you are to Steve and his family and how thankful you are that he leaves you as friends. Don't insult me with that. Take that somewhere else. Show me that your organization is not a three-ring circus. Why don't you spend more time focusing on what you're going to do with your anti-Semitic player? It took days until Sean Marks, the GM of the team, finally came out yesterday and said, you know, just so you are aware, we are now having both internal and external discussions about what to do with Kyrie Irving. They told us that Joe Sy is talking to the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. <laughs> Myers Leonard didn't have that long a trial. He was suspended, as I told you on yesterday's 10-minute extra show. He got suspended immediately, blackballed, done, out of the game. Hmm. Kyrie Irving is playing, albeit not well. Great game last night by the Nets. They lost in their first game with their interim coach, maybe their last game with their interim coach. But thank God the Nets are having conversations so they can figure out what to do. I don't know if they're speaking to the NBA because the NBA is so quiet. I'm not sure that you can find a church mouse. Where do you find them to talk to them? The ADL is always happy to talk to you. What do you think they're saying? Hey, Joe, when you talk to the ADL, are you thinking that they're saying, listen, we have to really take care of our brother. We have to explain to the world that he's a good man and that he was not promoting anything. There's more horse hockey coming out of the Nets basketball team than basketball, which may explain why they are having trouble both on and off the court. The circus is going to another city, and it's going to continue. All right, when we come back, we are going to review a movie with Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. How awesome is that, that they're making another movie? And then we're going to talk about something going on in Cincinnati that just will make me laugh and you laugh. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. My name is David Sampson. Thank you for rating and reviewing and subscribing and telling your friends we're having a heck of a month. October was a great month thanks to you. We're now starting off in November. Subscribe on YouTube as well. We're getting ever so closer to 10,000. I think we should be hitting it in the next couple of days, and then we will do the randomizer, and someone's getting something. One of you subscribers is winning something cool. I promise you that. I watch a movie every day. I look for new releases. 
I look to see what people want me to watch, what you, the audience, writes to me to tell me to watch. You guys have been great with suggestions. But I saw The Good House with Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. It's called The Good House. And first I thought it was like another Kevin Klein movie with um, Rachel Bilson's old boyfriend who was in Star Wars, the guy who was in Jump. His name is uh, Hayden Christensen. And that was a movie called Life as a House, which is another tear-jerk movie. Loved it. If you want to cry during a movie, I mean, there's certain go-to cry movies. Um, that's one of them. It's called Life is a House, but that's not what this is. This is called The Good House, except it's not about a house, which really threw me off. It's a woman named Good. Her name, Sigourney Weaver, Sigourney Weaver plays a real estate agent whose last name is Good. Her high school boyfriend is played by Kevin Klein, who's now an old, gruff, sort of antisocial guy in the same small town. It takes place in northern New England somewhere. And these two actors are like gems. Kevin Klein's an Academy Award winner, as you know. And anytime he makes a movie, you just have to watch it, no matter what it is. Anytime, because he doesn't just choose movies for money anymore. He chooses movies of scripts he likes, stories he likes, and people he likes to work with. We're not talking about like Nicolas Cage here or Bruce Willis before he got sick. We're talking about major decisions that are good, and this one's good. So the story is about an alcoholic, played by Sigourney Weaver, who's trying to figure out life as a divorced woman trying to make money selling homes and what happens in a small town when there's competition to sell homes and then there are people who are trying to help you and people who are trying to hurt you and how you navigate that. It sounds like your standard, ordinary script, but that's when casting comes into play. The reason to see this movie is to enjoy Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein while you can. Their death is not imminent, but they're not young. Enjoy them while they can. It's called The Good House. I paid for it. I don't know that you need to because it will stream at some point, but don't miss it. So remember all the betting that's going on? I mean, it's hard to miss, right? It's commercials everywhere. You've got Jesse from Breaking Bad. You've got Jamie Foxx for Bet MGM. You've got the Breaking Bad actor for Bet365, you got FanDuel, DraftKings, there's gambling. And the leagues are not running from it, the leagues are running toward it. Teams are not running from it, teams are cashing in. And we told you quite a bit ago that the Chicago Cubs were gonna open a sports book in their stadium, and we had to wait to see that they won't be the only team that will have a sports book in the stadium. There's now a sports book in Chase Field. There's sports books. It's going to be everywhere. Ten years from now, we are going to be Europe. I don't mean that we'll be under Europe's command, though never say never to anything, but we're, like in Europe, when you go to an EPL game, you can bet during the game. It's like a concession stand. You get a hot dog, you get a brewski, and then you get a Messi to score. That's coming to a stadium near you. It's here. Yesterday, we found out that Cincinnati 
has decided there's going there's gonna to be a casino in Cincinnati. There's going to be live sports betting. There's going to be sports betting that's now legal. And guess who they're bringing in? It's, I mean, I'm giving this away, right? Who is going to be the first person, the celebrity to place the first bet? Guess. Do you have it? Pete Rose. Yeah, Pete Rose, the all-time hits leader in Major League Baseball. Not the world. That's each row. Pete Rose, the guy banned from baseball for gambling. Pete Rose, the guy who's not eligible to be inducted into the Hall of Fame because he's on the inactive list because of gambling. Pete Rose, who has not been allowed back in even after having a parole hearing time and time again. He's being trotted out after not being allowed to go on the field in Cincinnati without prior written permission of the Cincinnati Reds and Major League Baseball. Pete Rose is making bets in Cincy, and I am loving it. I am full McDonald's with this decision. Because guess what fans think about Pete Rose not being eligible for the Hall of Fame or Pete Rose still being suspended? They're over it because the hypocrisy of it is not lost on them. They don't quite realize the reason why Pete Rose does not get reinstated has much more to do with Bud Selig being alive and Bart Giamatti being dead than it does with them not wanting Pete Rose to be eligible for the Hall of Fame. Bart Giamatti gave him the lifetime suspension and then dropped dead. Bud Selig loved Bart Giamatti. Bud Selig as the new commissioner would not reverse anything Bart Giamatti did, felt feeling it was disrespectful toward Paul Giamatti's father, Bart Giamatti, who was the commissioner and then croaked as commissioner. Bud Selig is still alive, and Rob Manford, the current commissioner, does not want to do anything to upset Bud Selig. So when Bud Selig passes, God forbid, hope he lives another 120 years, but it's hard to imagine any of us doing that. That said, when Bud Selig passes, does that mean that Rob Manford will then forget history and allow Pete Rose back in? Or are they waiting for Pete Rose to croak and then do it posthumously? I've spent so much time talking to the commissioner about this situation. There are so many ways we could have handled the better, including making him eligible for the Hall of Fame and putting it up to the writers whether he gets in because the writers decide who gets into the Hall of Fame, wink, wink. So therefore, let the writers decide. And if you don't want him to be on the field, you can easily make sure that teams don't hire him. Do you think that MLB does not make it known when they don't want a certain player to be in uniform? Do you think when a team is going to hire a player who has some sort of past that they don't speak to Major League Baseball first? Do you really believe that? Think Mark McGuire just became a coach without any prior conversation with the league office? Absolutely not. Mark McGuire has had a chance to coach. He's been a coach for a very long time. It was not done without talking to the league. If you talk to the league and the league says don't hire Pete Rose to be an on-field coach, then no team's going to hire him to be an on-field coach. But he can still be eligible. But when he's being trotted out as the face of gambling and you have a position in your sport where you're not anti-gambling anymore and you're encouraging your fans to gamble, you're hoping they gamble, that level of inconsistency bothers me greatly. Nothing personal pick of the day. We are 124 and 104. I had the Astros beating the Phillies last night. I don't believe that took place. 
um, I'll have to listen to the beginning of the show, but I believe that they lost. It's one of my worst losses. I really thought the Astros would win that game. All right, game four tonight. We're, t- we're back to 20 over. I grant you we are on a bit of a cold streak. We're still 20 games over 500 with only two months left in the year. I am 3-10 and 10 in my last 13 picks. That is C-O-L triple D. Well, I'm sticking with the Astros. There's no way the Phillies. Are they the team of destiny? Uh, it's possible. Nola's not been pitching like a top-of-the-rotation guy. Javier's better than people think. I'm taking Astros' money line over the Phillies tonight. Okay. I want to address what happened in, uh, in Michigan over the weekend. I want to spend the few remaining moments I have on this. I'm quite concerned about it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there was a game between Michigan and Michigan State, and then after the game, there was a kerfuffle in the tunnel between Michigan State players and Michigan players, except it was pretty one-sided. It's what I would imagine it would look like if I were ever going to be beaten up, which I never have been, but it would be pretty one-sided, me and my 5'5", 130-pound frame, although after a month in Stanford, it's like 138 right now. There's video of what the Michigan State players did, and it was a street brawl. It was a wilding. It was a crime. I don't know where the coaches were for Michigan State. I don't know where the coaches were for Michigan. I just know that the Michigan players who got ganged up on had no way out. I understand that these players get amped up for games. I understand there's competition, especially intrastate, Michigan, Michigan State. I understand that we want hooliganism because we want violence. We love watching it on the field. Have we ever thought for a moment that what we asked these players to do on the field was going to translate off field? Did you ever think that when you put a 20-year-old in a situation where you demand of them in front of hundreds of thousands of people with millions of dollars at stake, be as violent as you can possibly be? But by the way, when the clock strikes zero, could you please go do some macrame? Some needlepoint? Can we stand in a circle and sing Barry Manilow? And then we get surprised when the violence leaks off court, off field. We, fans, sponsors, TV dollars, that's Frankenstein. The monsters we've created are on the field players. We promote it, we let them do drugs, we let them get as big as they possibly can. We give them equipment so they can go as hard as each other as possible. And then we get upset when the monster tries to eat us? These are college students. Doesn't matter. When it happens in the pros, we dismiss it. There's a fine. We like it when it's hockey players fighting on the field. We like it. We want it. We cheer for it. NASCAR drivers beating the crap out of each other. Bring it on. College players, though, Mm. Now we have to say something. 
Now we have to be upset about it. Michigan State's president had to get involved. Michigan's president had to get involved. Apologies had to be given. Jim Harbaugh, the coach of Michigan, did not accept the apology given by Michigan State. Michigan State suspended eight players so far. Those players have lawyers because they committed a crime. It's amazing what you're allowed to do on the field of play. Some things can be a crime. Using your stick as a weapon in hockey, we've seen that. But we make sure it's not a crime to go after a player as hard as you can as long as they've got a helmet and pads on and so do you. But when those helmets come off or you're outside of the white lines of the football field and you go after someone, hey, 20 guys go after the running back while he's got the ball, game on. 20 guys go after the running back without his helmet after a game, crime. Is that making sense to you? Are we asking too much of the players to differentiate? At what point do we as fans take responsibility for what we've created? Frankenstein never did. Dr. Frankenstein never did. We're never going to. Shameful. A lesson needs to be taught. Those players need to be suspended for the rest of the season. They're suspended indefinitely right now. They should not play again the rest of the season. We have to make it clear what goes on between the lines cannot go on outside the lines. You have to teach them like their children. To teach them like their children, you have to teach them by example. Give them concrete examples of what's acceptable and what's not. It cannot be acceptable what they're doing outside the lines. Another day we'll talk about whether it's acceptable what they're doing inside the lines. But for now, we'll be back tomorrow. It's just business. This is nothing personal. 